Yeah, what makes Jesus so different than uh, Thor or Zeus is that you can actually go to Israel and you can go investigate all these things and you can see where he was, you can see where he walked, you can see, you can go to Caesarea and see where they found the Pontius Pilate inscription. You can go uh, to Capernaum and you can actually see where, you can see the synagogue that Jesus actually taught in. You can walk on the same stones that he walked in, that he walked on. So, uh, yeah, it's not, uh, as the gospel writer said, we're, we're not following cleverly devised myths. We are, we were eyewitnesses of his, they're claiming to be eyewitnesses. And again, to the skeptic out there, it's like, well, you yeah, know, yeah, they're making it up. But again, uh, what I would respond to is that uh, why would they make it up? These are just benign historical references that you can actually go check out. Let's be honest. Talking about our faith, it can get hard sometimes. Sometimes we get caught up in the world. But now, the world will have to get caught up in us. We're here to talk about it. We're here to talk about our real faith. We're here to talk about the real God. For unapologetic apologetics everywhere, welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. Uh, tell me a little bit about your ministry. Tell me a little bit about your background. And tell me a little bit about uh, why you think archaeology is important for Christians. Well, uh, Matt, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, yeah, so... I started Epic Archaeology about, um, it's going on three years now. Well, this this coming spring will be three years. So we started it on, uh, we launched it officially on Easter Sunday morning of 2017, because of course, that's when Christians around the world celebrate the resurrection. And the resurrection is the foundation of our faith. Uh, but the reason why I started it is uh, a couple of, several different reasons. Uh, number one, um, I have a training background, a master's degree in apologetics, and uh, my area of expertise or specialty is in biblical archaeology. One of the problems, though, Matt, that, I, that I've seen is that there's a lot of great stuff in, in archaeology, but it's not really translated very well. It really doesn't come across to the average churchgoer. You know, it's the guy, the, the grandmother going to church or the, you know, the, the church folks going to Sunday school, whatever. So I wanted to have a website, not only to communicate what some of the amazing discoveries that we found uh, that actually show the biblical record is historically reliable, but also um, to defend the faith to those who have questions about, well, is there any evidence that this uh, ever actually happened? Uh, and really, that's the main thrust of, of epic archaeology is, uh, of course, you were in Birmingham, but I, I went to Mississippi State, so don't hold that against me. But my, my undergrad in archaeology was at Mississippi State University. And uh, even though it is in the in the Bible Belt of the South, we uh, had a couple of professors who were very skeptical about the historical record of the Bible, and they didn't believe it was actually historically accurate. So, um, so that's really the the seedbed of when I began to connect the dots and wanted to try to find out if there's any historical and archaeological evidence for these stories that I had been had read about my whole life, and I wanted to know did these things actually happen? Uh, is there any evidence that they happen? So that led me to apologetics, which then led me to biblical archaeology. And um, so I started Epic Archaeology also uh, for people like myself who may have heard stories in the Bible and now they maybe have had a liberal professor or maybe watched a documentary on History Channel or Discovery Channel. And, uh, and these professors, these egghead professors are saying, well, you know, this never happened or whatever. But I want to have a resource where they can go to find out uh, what historical evidences that we do have. For the biblical record. And I got to say, Matt, 
I mean, um, I've, I taught undergrad archaeology and I've taught just a little bit of seminary arch, biblical archaeology and apologetics. And I got to say for about mm, 15, 16 years and uh, the deeper I've gotten into it, the more amazed I, I have been. And, and we live in an amazing time today because there's so much more information coming out of the ground and it's even more amazing and more reliable than we could have ever imagined. I mean, we all believe that by faith, but now uh, we've got some really hard evidence to back it up. Yeah, and the interesting thing is, so every year they have the Evangelical Theological Society, and that's something I, and the Evangelical Philosophical Society. It wasn't until last year that I went with our friend, Doug Powell, and Doug is like, you know, there's a society that meets that's of right. a bunch of guys who love archaeology. Why don't you come to this side of, of, of the convention? And let's, I want to introduce you to a, to a whole network of, of, of nerds, you know, and, and I went and I was fascinated because I always knew that, you know, there was biblical archaeology and that went on. Uh, but these guys, I mean, they really knew their stuff. Yeah. A lot and, of my colleagues are there. Yeah. The ancient Near Eastern Archaeological Society. Yes. That's it. And, yes. and you're, you know, you kind of think, okay, archaeology, the way that it's presented in church is kind of ham-fisted. Who knows if it's really true or not, but yep. when you go and listen to people like you or these guys speak, you're like, oh, these aren't just Christian archaeologists. These are real, honest-to-goodness archaeologists that can stand probably toe-to-toe with anybody else when it comes to evidences. I even yep. saw a little uh, disagreement, like a heated disagreement, and I love this kind of stuff, by the way, <laughs> over like dates, right? And oh, these two guys that's... were going after it when it came to dates and you know, this guy was like, you're not right. This guy, and I thought, man, this yes. is the only kind of place where, you know, these guys, this stuff is significant and has real meaning. So, exactly. I mean, is that true? I mean, is it, is, I mean, this is what you, I guess what you're trying to do with your ministry is to tell yeah. people, listen, we're, I mean, we got it. We're doing really good archaeology as Christians. Absolutely, Matt. Um, and you, you, uh, you touched on something that is critically important when, uh, when it comes to, finding or discovering evidence, historical and archaeological evidence for the biblical record, and that is chronology and timing, dating. Um, I wrote an article called The Backbone of History uh, for our website, epicarchaeology.org, that folks can go to Epic Archaeology, click on blog, and they can find it. But um, essentially what the article says is is that um, when an event happened, when we think it happened, is important for helping us discover where it actually happened in the archaeological record. And there are a couple of there are a couple of heated areas in even among evangelical archaeologists over the dating of certain events. And uh, a couple of those are the most important one probably in the Old Testament is the dating of the Exodus. And the second one is the conquest. Um, but as James Hoffmeyer says, uh, he's up here in the in the uh, you know upper Midwest, um, an archaeologist, he he says that the Exodus and conquest stand or fall together. So wherever we place the date of the Exodus, the conquest must follow about 40 or so years after that. And so we can plug those purported dates in to the archaeological record to see if we actually do have evidence for that. And of course, I have an opinion about this as well, and so do my colleagues. But um, years ago, there was a, a really uh, interesting book written by uh, Professor uh, William Deaver, uh, retired now from the University of Arizona. And Bill Deaver's book really pinpoints the nature of the, this whole debate about biblical archaeology. What did the biblical writers know and when did they know it? So important because, I mean, that, that question really cuts to the heart of the whole debate about 
are the biblical writers just making stories up uh, after they happened or maybe they never happened and they're just saying it, you know, or were they eyewitnesses of it? Um, that's a critically important question. But I got to say, um, I believe we've got some really strong evidence that all of it happened. Yeah, I, I, even this year, I watched, of course, it was online. Uh, they were There was a whole special session on Sodom. Uh, that was just so incredibly fascinating. I have a friend yep. of mine who's a pretty big theologian, teaches in the area. He's one of the smartest guys that I know. He said biblical archaeology is one of those things that almost sucked him into a vortex because he said he loves <laughs> philosophy, but there was something <laughs> tangibly just incredible about archaeology. He says, I understand why people get lost in it, and I totally understand why you're so passionate and lost in it as well, and I'm just yeah. a layman, right? So, but let's get to why, you know, I'd love to have you on more, you know, as, as a guest, because I want to promote your work, but I wanted to bring you on to talk, to kind of almost give a people kind of an idea of how this works. We did this with Doug Powell last year, but the Bible itself and its story is just, it's not just a, a super myth, right? And myth in, the, I'm not using myth in the sense of Lewis using myth. I just mean the myth that most people yep. think that it's a fairy tale, right. that it's something that just, it's a story that makes people feel happy. In fact, if you look at some areas, especially in the New Testament and the Gospels, it is rooted in history and yeah. testable history. And no other time is that even more apparent than in the Christian, you know, the birth of Christ narrative, uh, the nativity yeah. of Jesus Christ. I mean, you start reading these stories and there's these little, you know, there's these little, you know, there's a person here, or a place here or, or something else that we can go and test. You can go and excavate. Yeah. So yeah. let's, let's, let's break down the story a little bit, because I know you have a couple of things that you're writing that we're going to post and try to retweet. Um, what are some kind of the key points in the nativity where you yourself can go and say, we can test this? Well, I mean, you touched on it, Matt, and that is in, in the Gospel of Luke, actually. Let me, uh, excuse me, let me turn my email off because it'll be blinging. Um, but in the Gospel of Luke, Luke actually gives us, and if you read the account, he gives us historical markers, things that you can actually go. In fact, he says it in chapter one that um, he wanted to carefully investigate those things. It's interesting, the word investigate is the same word for history. The Greek word historia means investigation. It doesn't mean myth. So Herodotus, the Greek uh, writer, Herodotus is the one who we think coined the term history. Uh, but Luke and the gospel writer Luke, of course, wrote not only the gospel of Luke, but he also wrote the book of Acts as well. But he gives us in Luke chapter two, I mean, really specific historical markers that you can actually go and investigate. So, you know, this is not like, this is not like, Tolkien writing Lord of the Rings, you know, and the land of Gondor, you know, this is like you can actually go and with a shovel and a spade and go dig this stuff up. He says, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The census took place while Quirinius was governing Syria, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth to Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So, right there. Right there in the jump, you've got several names that were thrown out, several historical events that were thrown out. And um, one of the things, and let me just sort of um, back up a little bit before we get into it. And uh, this is something that I teach the way I teach it at Epic Archaeology um, is that um, it's an important question. It seems like a sort of benign question to talk about, but it's a really important question before we get into 
looking at because I could give you the 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 reason to give you the answer, but I want to know I want people to know why we think this is the case, not that we're just making it up. So here's the question, and then we'll get into some of the evidences that we, we've looked at. And I've got some really cool stuff to share, some new stuff that I actually just learned myself uh, in the past several months. I interviewed uh, Professor Jody Magnus at UNC Chapel Hill. She is uh, one of the top. I would say probably one of the top New Testament archaeologists in the world, if not in the country, if not in the United States. She's also a colleague of Bart Ehrman, by the way, at UNC Chapel mm-hmm. Hill. But anyway, uh, I'll share with you some stuff uh, that Jody shared with me. In fact, she sent me your article. Uh, that it will, It's about Herod the Great. But um, So here's the question. How do we know the past first? That's, that's a fundamental question. How do we even, I mean, most people just sort of jump and want to know the archaeological evidence, and there is good archaeological evidence, but the first question we need to ask is, well, how do we need even know the past to begin with? Because we live in, a, we live in an internet, Twitter world, Instagram, social media, and, you know, in, in our modern mind, it's, it's sort of, we don't think in those terms, we just think uh, soundbite, you know, the kind of thing. But if you're an academic historian or an archaeologist, you have to ask the academic question, how do we even know the past? If something happened 100 years ago, 200 years ago, or 2,000 years ago, how do we even have knowledge of that? Um, is it just somebody's, you know, invention? So, uh, again, I'm, I'm going to very, I'm going to summarize it in a very, in a way that some academics probably won't like, but it actually holds true, I think. And that is that we know the past through what we call primary sources. And there are three primary sources, pr- three essential primary sources for ancient history or any history. And they, has, that they are, number one, eyewitnesses, number two, historical records, and number three, archaeological evidence. So you have eyewitnesses. Someone who actually had to have seen the event and live through it in order for us to have knowledge of it, because there could be a lot of events, but unless a person saw it, then they wrote it down. They wrote it either in a journal or a, an article or a book or whatever the case may be, a, a manuscript, an inscri- inscription, whatever the case may be. And then we've got the archaeological evidence. The problem, though, is that in to give you a modern analogy of that, uh, we could say, uh, well, one, there's several different examples, but for, for time, I'll give you one example, and that is my grandfather um back in uh, back when i was a kid we would always go to my grandparents for thanksgiving and uh, for whatever reason it was in the it was in arkansas actually which is normally warm in in november in arkansas but inevitably it would always be cold my grandfather liked building fires and so he'd build this big roaring fire in the fireplace and we'd back up to the fireplace and he would tell us stories about being in the war and as a kid, I thought, well, I don't know what war he was in. I had no idea. But he, he talked about crossing the English Channel, you know, and his hands being cold and having to get out on the beach with his gun and all that. Come to find out, my grandfather was on D-Day. I mean, he, he, was, he drove a Higgins boat on D-Day, June 6, 1944. So my grandfather was an eyewitness to D-Day. Now, several years ago, he passed away. And my grandmother gave me some of his, a lot of his old stuff because she knew that I loved hearing stories about my grandfather in D-Day. So he has this book that actually has all his record of where he was, when he was there. It had photographs in it. They actually have a, had pictures of a captured German torpedo boat. Uh, they had pictures of him in his uh, landing barge, you know, like Saving Private Ryan, all that kind of stuff. So we have now historical record. So my grandfather would be the eyewitness. His, his uh, uh, diary in his little Blue Jackets manual, that would be the historical record. And then the archaeological evidence, we could actually go to Normandy. We can go to the coast of Normandy. We can actually find, still to this day, uh, concrete reinforced German positions on the sides of the banks of Normandy. So we have these three things working together. We have an eyewitness account, 
my grandfather telling me a story. Now he could have been he could have made it up, but then he has the historical record. And now we've got the archaeological record in which we can compare to see if the archaeological record actually matches what we actually see in my grandfather's writings. But here's the thing about the historical records also, Matt, and that is that not only do we did my, did my grandfather have uh, an account of being on D-Day, but there are hundreds, if not thousands of other eyewitness accounts of other soldiers besides my grandfather. Uh, and then also on the other side, this gets into something Mike Lacona talks about uh, when he talks about historiography. And that is when, what we want is we want multiple attestation and we want enemy attestation. We want people who were not even friendly to uh, whatever it is we're talking about. And that would be on in the in the World War II example. It would be like the Germans. You know, they, these allies they came across the English Channel. They kept coming and they kept coming, and they're writing about it. So their accounts also match. So, so all of that we've kind of dove into the idea of of historiography and how it is that we know the past. So, so when we when people today read the Christmas story, you know, uh, it's supposedly written by an eyewitness, Luke, or maybe uh, he interviewed eyewitnesses. And, uh, and so we don't really can't interview him. He's, uh, he's long gone. So the only thing we have is the historical record in the New Testament, and we have the archaeological record. And, um, and, the, and the period in which uh, the New Testament says Jesus was born is a period that we know of very well in ancient history. In fact, it's it blows, to be honest with you, it just boggles my mind how people could today could be Jesus mythicists because it is one of the most well-attested periods in ancient history. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the, the, uh, the early or the um, early Roman uh, Empire in which you've got uh, Julius Caesar and then you've got Octavius Augustus who, uh, who comes on in 31 BC, becomes the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. And, and Luke tells us, it says, and it came, t- it came to pass in the days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. So, so we begin the Christmas story with the existence of Caesar Augustus. We know him very well. Um, there's a, uh, um, there's so many. Gosh, it's like there. This is so rich, and there's so much stuff. So you asked me a totally loaded question. We could we could be <laughs> days. But let me sure. just say this: um, I wrote an article that uh, that I personally like, uh, just because I like the subject. It was. Um, an event that was recorded by the Roman historian Tacitus, that it happened in 9 AD. Jesus would have been, according to some of the chronology that I follow, Jesus would have been approximately um, five or six years old. But um, there were three Roman legions that were completely annihilated in Germany by uh, by a Armenian, or excuse me, by a Germanic uh, um guy who was captured and he was sort of a spy in the roman army and he ambushed three roman legions in a place called the tudorberg forest in germany and this happened during the uh, end of the reign of octavius caesar and uh so tacitus records this but he also records events about the early church and gary habermas talks a lot about this in his uh, a lot of his writings that there are 15 historical facts that we can learn about the life of christ just from tacitus so the, in the article, it's called Tacitus and the Lost Legions of Varus. Um, it's on Epic Archaeology. People can read about that. But uh, I make the connection between the fact that if Tacitus can record accurate history and the archaeology can back it up, he also records about what was going on in Palestine in the first century. So, so even we don't even have the archaeology. We just got Tacitus. But the archaeology does uh, back up Tacitus. And again, nobody doubts that Augustus lived. That's not even up for debate. So, uh, so we begin there, and there's good evidence for that. And then uh, the, the uh, census of Quirinius. 
And uh, that's the second thing we can look at. And we also have another article on epic archaeology, which people could check out on the census of Quirinius. Uh, but there are a couple of different options. Uh, depends on who you ask. Uh, I know that Gleason Archer, uh, Old Testament scholar from years ago, uh, resolved the issue uh, one way. Some scholars today resolve it another way. But essentially, uh, the census definitely took place. We know about Quirinius. Uh, Josephus writes about him. Tacitus writes about him. We know that he lived. There are some chronological issues, uh, but one one thing I'll, I'll tell you, Matt. The one the one way we can actually um, uh, affirm that this event happened is number one: we know that there was a guy named Quirinius who was governing Syria. Uh, there's no direct evidence of a census at that time, but we do know that the Romans did take censuses. In fact, there's some evidence that they took it every 14 years, and um, so there's either multiple censuses that were going on, and Luke mentions the first one, whereas Josephus mentions the second one, or there were two people named Quirinius, and that's not impossible. But uh, the view that I hold to actually follows from a New Testament scholar by the name of Jack Finnegan. And um, Jack Finnegan, uh, brilliant guy. He is a biblical chronologist and uh, he's really, really wrote some great stuff. But um, he actually mentions this really cool discovery that was made. Um, in 1784, there was a Latin inscription discovered near Tivoli, Italy, uh, about 20 miles south of Rome. It's known as the Lapis Tiburnius, uh, excuse me, Tiber, Tibertinus inscription. And this contains a statement of a high Roman official that when he became governor of Syria, he entered the office for the second time. Um, it's even thought that the person may have been Quirinius. So, uh, so this is possible that Quirinius served as governor twice, uh, which would also explain the census. So, so again, the census is certainly plausible. It's in the historical record. We know that, that Romans did do censuses, so that makes sense. Um, so that's just the starters. Um, so I'll stop there and see if you have any questions at this no, point. No, I mean, there is a whole bunch that we could talk about here. I'm just, I'm amazed when you just slow down because we, we, we quickly read through this, especially during Christmas. But if you slow these things down, if you slow sentence by sentence and just read it, I mean, there, there's, there's, I mean, there's no reason why Luke had to add all this information other no. than he's probably telling you how they got to Bethlehem, why they're in Bethlehem. And right. if you, if, if, you know, uh, we we have somebody like in our in our apologetic world called Lydia McGrew. Tim and Lydia always talk oh, yeah. about just um, not coincidences, you know. That's right. I mean, there's there's a little bit of a you see here because you think even in Matthew when you when you when you talk about the um, when the wise men visit, I mean, they go and visit because they don't know where he's going to be at. But the people in Jerusalem, the ones who would have known better, said, "Well, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem." So, I mean, we know that Jesus, it was important for, for all different reasons for why the Messiah to come from that city. And now, and now we know that Luke has given us historical reasons why they went to the city. Uh, so right. you're, you're seeing how these, you know, these, you said attestations, these different um, uh, gospel narratives are helping each other out, you know, and, it, exactly. and it's not, they just don't throw this out there to throw it out there. There's a reason why he was in. There's a biblical reason and a prophetic reason why the Messiah comes from this from Bethlehem, but there's also historical reasons how he got there. It's just like you said, yeah. it's so fun to know that this is a great myth in the Lewis sense, but also a great historical event that worked in real time. And to me, I think that's incredible. Right. 
Yeah, what makes Jesus so different than uh, Thor or Zeus is that you can actually go to Israel and you can go investigate all these things and you can see where he was. You can see where he walked. You can see, you can go to Caesarea and see where they found the Pontius Pilate inscription. You can go uh, to Capernaum and you can actually see where, you can see the synagogue that Jesus actually taught in. You can walk on the same stones that he walked in, that he walked on. So, uh, yeah, it's not, uh, as the gospel writer said, we're, we're not following cleverly devised myths. We are, mm-hmm. we were eyewitnesses of his, they're claiming to be eyewitnesses. And again, to the skeptic out there, it's like, well, yeah, oh, yeah, they're making it up. But again, uh, what I would respond to is that, uh, why would they make it up? These are just benign historical references that you can actually go check out. And so that's one of the functions. And, and if I haven't said it, let me just say this, that uh, the way I, where I see archaeology uh, dovetail with apologetics is uh, archaeology can function in one of three ways, or, or sometimes all three together. Number one, archaeology can affirm the historical basis of the text, the, the Bible. Number two, it can illuminate the world of the Bible, and it can also clarify certain passages in the text. So clarify, affirm, and illuminate. And uh, for most sort of liberal-leaning scholars, they look at archaeology more in the illuminate illuminative sense. They look at it as, that. well, it just helps us to understand the Old Testament or the New Testament world, and that's true. And it's very helpful when it comes to exegetical questions and uh, certain interpretive issues, hermeneutical issues. Um, I'll give you one example. There are several, but one one example that I really find fascinating is, um, well, actually two from the Exodus. One is in the uh, the third commandment uh, in, in Exodus chapter 20, uh, of course, you know, the first three commandments, no other gods before me, uh, make no graven images. And number three is do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So several years ago when I was teaching an Old Testament survey, um, I was going through my notes and I was getting ready to teach this, like the, the Decalogue, you know, the Ten Commandments. And in the context of ancient Egypt, because if you if we believe that the Israelites were actually in Egypt, that they they were just made up, they were actually living in Egypt for 400 years. And and the other thing, too, is that when Moses in in Exodus three, when he is before the burning bush and 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 he doesn't even know God's name, because when I when I go back to the Israelites, you know, and I tell them that you sent me. What do I tell them? What is your name? He didn't even know their, know his name. So I'm thinking, how could they have violated the third commandment if they didn't even know his name, if they barely even knew his name? So, so I was like, there's got to be something. And then I came across a really cool um, uh, book written by John Currid uh, called Ancient Egypt, the Old Testament. And it, I mean, it just blew my mind. And he talks about polemical theology, and which is another subject I won't get into. But basically, Essentially, what is what what's going on is this: that uh, in ancient Egypt, the Egyptians had household gods, and we know very very likely, and but we know it from the text. It's not just something that we just conjecture about. We can see it in the text itself in the Old Testament. The Israelites had become thoroughly paganized in Egyptian culture. They had absorbed Egyptian gods. They believed in Egyptian gods. They worshiped Egyptian gods. How do we know this? Well, as soon as Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, they're worshiping a golden calf. They're giving the golden calf the credit for their deliverance and not God. So the first three commandments all are rooted in the context of ancient Egypt. There are, uh, number one, there are no other gods except me. Egyptians had multiple gods. So he's telling Israelites, listen, I am the only one. There are no others. Number two, no graven images. I'm not, you can't form me. I'm not a snake. I'm not a, I'm not a falcon. I'm not this. I am a spirit and I am created all things. And number three is the interesting one. And that is 
when these Egyptians had their household gods, they could invoke the name of that. There was a magical name of the Egyptian mm -hmm. god. And when they said the magical name and they invoked the name of, of, of Isis or Osiris, then the, the magical name, that god had to do whatever the person asked. And so I think what the, the third commandment is basically saying is God saying, listen, I don't play that game. You can't just invoke my name and I just come running and do and give you what you want, which is actually even more powerful. And you think about it because, you know, when we think about violating the third commandment, you know, we think about saying God's name with a curse word. But it actually is more it's more uh, it's tougher than that because we we do that a lot. We just sort of think we can just throw God's name out there and he can give us what we want. But God says, listen, I am there's no one like me. You can't put me in a category of any other gods. I do what I want. It's my will, not your will. So you can't just invoke my name. So this is where, and we wouldn't we wouldn't know that apart from Egyptology. We would not know that apart from studying archaeology and the archaeology of ancient Egypt. So ancient Egypt, archaeology gives us insight. It clarifies the text. Now we could you can read that and as an English reader and you can understand it and you can completely take it away, take truth away from it. But when you understand the historical context, then it really becomes very powerful. And that's one of the very powerful tools of archaeology. So one of my crusades in, in, in epic archaeology is to get Christians to read their Bibles deeper in a deeper way and to show how archaeology not only does it is it just a checklist of, oh, we found this, we found this, we found this, but also Archaeology gives us some amazing insights into the ancient world of the biblical writers. Yeah, and, it's those aha moments, right? I mean, that's yeah. what I talk about. I, I watch you guys work, and and I, you know, I talk to friends that are involved in it, and they're constantly having uh, these. Uh, you said illuminate the text. I always talk to my students and say uh, it puts the text in high definition. You yeah. know, we're able to see things that you weren't able to see before, and you get real passionate, don't you? When you have these, you go to a place and you just have this aha moment. There's something about that that maybe you could tell me because you probably had more than me. These people that go to the Holy Land, um, you know, and then they come back just incredibly charged, right? You have those type people. Uh, yeah. We've had events before where we've had the Shroud of Turin, a uh, replica of it, uh, you know, and then people go see it. And we've connected it with, Haver we'd have Gary, Dr. Gary Habermas, he'd come talk about the Shroud, just kind of a way to get, key way to get people to come and talk about the resurrection. But when they see it, I, we've had people come and look at us around. They're like, oh, wow, that could be the face of Jesus. Something happens. I'm not saying their faith is not warranted, but when it gets clued into an historical reality, something happens, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yes, absolutely. It's uh, There's a connection. I think it comes back to the way God has hardwired us and um the one of the things I love about your ministry, Tactical Faith, and it's something that we try to do as well at Epic Archaeology, and that is that faith and reason are complementary, and that that um, it's when it's those moments when you have that aha moment you're talking about is when your faith is then you can see the foundation. You normally can't see the foundation of it because you believe you trust based on authority of Scripture, based on the authority of God's Word, but when you actually see the evidence, and you see it written in marble, Pontius Pilate's name. It's like, yeah, yeah. what you believe is right. You're huh. you're good. You're good, and you, you, and it's just amazing. The, your faith has now become sight. And Aquinas would say, then your faith is it's not faith anymore. It's knowledge, but but still faith. And I will say this: that archaeology, even though we've got amazing evidences, there is still plenty of room for faith. And for sure. one of my, one of the things I've heard people say is that, well, you know, you're just trying to prove it. No, archaeology can't prove anything. 
um, whenever we talk about proof, you know, we're I usually think of it in a mathematical sense or a logical sense. And we're not, we're not talking about like a deductive syllogism. Archaeology is uh, sort of an inductive science. It is an inductive science and it's based on probability. So we have higher degrees of probability and we have lower degrees of probability. Uh, but I would say overall, when we look at all of it together, uh, it, it provides a very uh, firm case that the, the biblical record is reliable. Yeah, and we it's it's interesting that we we all function that way, Christians and unbelievers, that in the sense that we all are made for a grand narrative. We're all yeah. wanting to be a part of some grand narrative that we want to know that's real. I mean, this was Lewis when he said, I finally found out that, you know, Christianity, you know, was was real in the sense that it was the great myth. It was the story of all yeah. stories. And yeah. the, one of the things I find funny is on YouTube, me and my kids watch YouTube. We don't watch TV anymore. We watch YouTube, right? That's what everybody does. There's like this cottage in industry of people that go around to find the places where films were made, right? Like, yeah. oh, here's a place where back to the, these are places where Back to the Future was actually made. And one of the things that I've noted with my children are, look how these people are so passionate about a story that they know is blatantly false, but they're passionate about it. So in other words, when they go to these places that they've seen on screen of a movie that they have incredible passion about, in a way they're doing the function of of, of an archaeologist here. Here's something that happened in real life. The tragedy is they know it's not the it's not a real story. That's yet right. They're passionate about it. What's so great about Christianity is it's, it is an incredible story, but it's an incredible story that we, like you said, can go to the places where it actually happened, and it happens to actually be true. And and yeah. those you know, and that's why I feel like even during Christmas time, it's an incredible opportunity to share your faith. Uh, It's an incredible opportunity to be passionate again about your faith, because this is not just a story. This is not a movie. This is a real life event that has has real uh, like implications on us all. And thank you so much for the ministry that you do. And I hope, Ted, that we we can come on and and promote it and talk about it. And, you know, this is just the start of of many times where you can come on. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Yeah, tell me a little bit before we go, a little bit about, you've already said about your website. Tell me, you know, do you, are you on Facebook or you on social media? Oh, yeah, yeah. So we are, people can check us out. It's epicarchaeology.org uh, is the website. And uh, we have got some, uh, a little bit of maintenance we need to do. We need to update some things, but uh, they can find blog articles. And then also, uh, if you're in the Chicagoland area, whenever things open back up, I actually lead tours through the Oriental Institute Museum at the University of Chicago, which is probably one of the greatest archaeological museums in the country. Um, The OI has been doing archaeology in the Near East for uh, about 100 years now. It was founded by James Henry Breasted, and um, I I found out a couple, about a year or so ago that um, Gleason Archer actually used to lead tours through the Oriental Institute, so I thought, man, that's... um, I'm geeking out because I'm totally a Gleason Archer, uh, Archerite, and uh, he's a great guy. But so if you're in the Chicago area, I lead tours through Oriental Institute Museum. We also have YouTube channel, uh, Epic Archaeology YouTube. Uh, we have a podcast called Monocle and Spade in which we explore the world of the Bible and beyond through the lens of history and archaeology. Uh, we've got about seven or eight podcasts right now. They're on YouTube. We're trying to get them updated to iTunes so people can listen just audio. Uh, version. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, follow us on Facebook. Uh, we post most of our stuff on Facebook. So, um, yeah, people can check us out there as well. Oh, well, 
again, thank you for what you do. We're going to put all this information on the show notes uh, for people. And we're going to start posting some of your your stuff on Tactical Faith just to get them to link to your website uh, for you. the people of Alabama. But, oh, man, Chicago is one of my wife's favorite cities. So great. we're definitely going to come up there and, and do that tour with my kids because I think that would be great. Well, much uh, love to you and uh, much love to your ministry. And thank we you, brother. Will- We will get to you uh, in the future. God bless. Sounds good. Merry Christmas. God bless.